This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. According to a recent survey from the Office for National Statistics, more than one in ten young women in the UK identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual or other, up from 3.1% in 2014. This seems to show a positive move towards the destigmatization of non-heterosexualities. But there's still a way to go. In her new book, psychologist Dr Julia Shaw looks at the realities of being bi, from scientists trying to objectively prove the existence of bisexuality, to the day-to-day experiences of biphobia and high rates of sexual assault. Today I'm speaking to Julia about the hidden science of bisexuality and why it's time we all started talking about it more. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. So Julia, before we dive into all of this, I feel like it's really important for us to get a working definition of what we mean when we say bisexuality, because early on in your book, you point out that the term actually has quite a broad application. It can, but most researchers and individuals define bisexuality as the romantic and or sexual attraction to multiple genders. And what's really important in that is that people sometimes mistakenly assume that the bi in bisexual means men and women because we're so into this conversation right now about the gender binary, which is really important to have. But actually, the bi in in bisexual refers to both heterosexual and homosexual attractions. In other words, it's same and other genders, and it is inclusive of all genders. So it's not transphobic, just to be clear, because I think sometimes... Unfortunately, people use alternative words because they think that bisexuality reinforces a gender binary, which isn't true. So actually, I'd like to talk about science's attempts to object 
objectively measure bisexuality. And you can't see, but I was doing air quotes there because a very interesting study from 2020 came out, which was covered quite widely in the media, often with headlines along the lines of scientists finally prove male bisexuality is real. So I wonder, can you tell me about this research and perhaps where science might have been going wrong in trying to understand what bisexuality is? It was the first study that made me realize that for a long time, scientists have been the enemy when it comes to gay and queer rights. So this paper involved a write-up of various papers which use something called the penile plethysmograph, which is basically an object that's attached to a penis to see how aroused men get. And researchers would show these men in studies various types of pornography. And if the men reacted to pornography that involved men and women, then they were classified as bisexual. And so the researchers who wrote this paper um, basically said, oh, finally, finally, we've proven through this method and through these studies that bi men actually exist. Meanwhile, they're reinforcing the idea, A, that you need to somehow prove your sexuality, which is incorrect. B, that there was ever really a question in the literature that bi men existed. Describing the experiment in that way really demonstrates how problematic it can be to try and objectively measure something as complex and subjective as sexuality. But I want you to take me much further back now and look at how we've understood it throughout history and how scientists have tried to quantify it. I think it's a really easy thing for people to say, ah, well, questionnaires and asking people about their sexual behavior, their sexual thoughts and their relationships is, you know, problematic because people are going to lie to you and because it's all very subjective. But that's <laughs> a much better way, actually, of measuring sexuality and is much more in line with the theory behind how we understand sexuality than trying to measure it objectively. So if we go back, we actually find that some of the earliest research on human sexuality, including by someone called Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, in the 1940s and 1950s, involved something called the Kinsey scale, which allowed people to place themselves on a scale from zero to six, from entirely heterosexual to entirely homosexual. And most people place themselves somewhere in the middle. After the Kinsey scale, another scientist came along and sort of expanded it I guess, a little bit, or reformed it. And this was the Klein grid. So what's that? So the Klein grid was created by a researcher and therapist called Fritz Klein. And where Kinsey was talking about sexual fantasies and behaviors, the Klein grid also includes the past, present, and future of each of these. Sorry, not future, ideal, which often involves the future. So it asks you, for example, what is your past sexual behavior? Is it entirely homosexual to entirely heterosexual or somewhere in between? What is your current sexual behavior? And what is your desired future <laughs> behavior? And I think this idea of trying to look backwards and forwards in time can help us understand whether or not we are satisfied with the life we're living and the way that we understand our sexuality. So he really wanted to give us a more complex way to understand sexuality beyond the nuance introduced by Kinsey. The way that you've described both the Kinsey scale and the Klein grid actually puts hetero and homosexuality more at the extremes and bisexuality is the, the bigger central element. I mean, often we think about bisexuality 
or just our sexuality in general as a kind of grey scale where you can kind of move the counter up and down. So, you know, you might be 20% into women, 80% into men or, you know, 50-50. But that's not really representative of how people actually feel, is it? No, it's not. I'm not 50% into men and 50% into women. I'm just into some women and into some men. And sometimes I'm interested in more women than men or vice versa. But that's not the same as being half and half. It also implies that if you understand homosexuality and heterosexuality, then you'll probably understand bisexuality because, well, it's just a mix of both. Whereas in reality, what research repeatedly finds is that there are bi-specific experiences that only bi people have that aren't experienced by heterosexual and homosexuals. And so if we lump everyone together and assume that bisexuality is just some sort of mix of both, of two, then we undermine bisexual experiences and don't conduct research on very important aspects of bisexual lives. I mean, it shows what complex sexual lives we all have, this must be a really difficult thing to properly quantify how many people are bisexual. It's incredibly difficult to quantify how many people are bi, and it totally depends on how you ask the question. So if you, in a you know questionnaire or a national survey, ask people, are you bi? They're going to say no. But if you ask them about where on the Kinsey scale they place themselves, well, suddenly you find that lots of people put themselves in the middle of the scale. So how many people are bi? Lots. (laughs) Now, Julia... We've been talking about the bi experience of people, but I'm also interested in all the other creatures in our animal kingdom. Where has bisexuality been observed outside of humans? Actually, almost in every, I want to say species, but certainly every mammal, it's been observed that animals have interactions, sexual interactions with multiple genders. So it's the norm, not the exception. And it's something that evolutionary biologists are really starting to reckon with that perhaps there's been a long time of misinterpreting and projecting heterosexual norms onto the animal kingdom. And basically writing off behavior that is homosexual in nature as power or dominance displays rather than accepting that some of them are probably sexual or affectionate displays. And so it's recategorizing how we label behavior when we see it in the animal kingdom and accepting that actually they're probably not just fighting all the time. And sometimes they might just be, you know, getting it on. Yes, because when it comes down to our explanations of what animals are up to at any one time, usually we look towards Darwin and reduce everything down to this ultimate motivation of continuing our gene pool. But there must be good reasons for animals to do things outside of that. So what are the kind of explanations that researchers are looking at for different kinds of sexuality within the animal kingdom? Basically, exclusively homosexual behavior is quite rare in the animal kingdom. So it's not that common to have no contact between an animal and 
the other gender or other sex in its species, which means that as long as you have some contacts with a, a creature that you can create offspring with, there will be a continuation of that species. And so in some ways, bisexuality in the animal kingdom doesn't limit mating opportunities. If anything, it increases them. And in lots of animals, it's not that easy to tell whether a creature is male or female. And so to try and just be like, hey, you're, you're kind of hot. Let's try and mate is actually a pretty good strategy in the wild. And I can imagine in social groups as well, when you think about a lot of animals that live together in big groups, sex can be play and it can be bonding as well. And those things are very important when you're living with lots of other animals together. Right. And it's something we see in bonobos who use sex and sexuality as a yeah form of facilitating social cohesion and it's not just bonobos i mean humans do it too i mostly don't have or in fact i've never had procreative sex <laughs> so it's you know we use it for lots of different things and that's something that we should accept animals also do sometimes Now, Julia, throughout our conversation, I think underlying a lot of this, and as you've actually pointed out, bisexuality, there's a lot of denial of it out there and a lot of misunderstanding and biphobia and people saying, you know, things like it's just a phase. Bi erasure is something that is all around us and it's, you know, if you're looking at history books, there's an obfuscation often or an erasure of by people and their contributions in history. There's a lack of people who are out and a public negativity that can come with outings. Of course, that can happen to all queer people. But with bisexual people, it's often sexualized. It's often seen as a call for attention. It's often seen as performative. So I've been accused, for example, in publishing this book um, on bisexuality, that I'm just attention seeking. And in fact, I've been asked whether I'm really bi, which I think is hilarious. I mean, that would be really a huge amount of commitment <laughs> to to a lie about my sexuality. Just go doing a whole master's in queer history, writing a whole book, my whole life just pretending. It, but those kinds of misconceptions are omnipresent. And so as long as they exist, it pushes people into the closet and it pushes people out of both heterosexual communities and queer communities. That idea that it's performative, that commodification of sexuality actually puts a lot of bisexual people at physical risk as well, doesn't it, of things like sexual assault. It does. So research has repeatedly found the hypersexualization of bisexual women and the consequences of it, which include an increased amount of stalking that's experienced by bisexual women compared to lesbian and heterosexual women, an increased risk of sexual assault, a massively increased risk of sexual assault, in fact. And sort of layered on top of that is that the resources that you have after something horrible happening to you are often deeply inadequate. And so you might, for example, go to a therapist. And if we look at research on bi people seeking therapy after sexual assaults, bi people basically say that was, if anything, not just not helpful, but that made it worse. And biphobic things were said to me within this therapeutic context. Gosh. And 
So do you think this is quite a hidden problem? And in that respect, how do we then begin to improve it? What are some of the key things that we might need to do to make health outcomes better for bisexual people? One of the main things we can do is train healthcare providers, but also to socially talk about bisexuality differently. And I want to say differently, but I wanted to say talk. (laughs) We just need to talk about bisexuality. Nobody talks about it. It's bizarre. It's LGBT. And somehow we've managed for decades to mostly jump over the B. And the nuance that bisexuality introduces into sexuality is often seen as an inconvenience. And until that changes, and until we actually start having conversations and including bisexual people in the discussion, we are going to continue to have massive biphobia and hypersexualization and the erasure of the reality of the human sexual experience to the devastation of many individual lives. So, Julia, obviously, it's extremely important that we all start talking about bisexuality more. We see it more in the media and all the things that we consume. But I wonder as well about research into bisexuality. And coming from the science angle, I mean, what would you be interested in finding out about? Where do you think that there are gaps worth filling I think one of the things I'd like to see is researchers also using the word bisexual because there's lots of circumscribing things that happen. So men who have sex with men or plurisexual or polysexual or all these terms that aren't really used by normal people outside of academic settings. And what that does is it creates a language within academic settings that makes it really hard for people who are are bi and identify as bi to find. Plus, it can be an inherently biphobic thing to do. So it's the same thing that happens on TV. If you look at film studies and you look at the critiques by film studies researchers of TV, when you see representation of bisexuality, more often than not, people talk about, well, I, I don't really I don't really mind who, what the gender is, or, oh, I like all people, or like, whatever. But people rarely actually say the word bisexual, as if it's some sort of dirty word. And so as long as researchers continue to do that, it's going to be hard to find. So a, a call to researchers to actually use the word bi. Finishing this conversation on a, on a positive note, because the acceptance and free expression of our sexuality is so good for us as individuals, good for society. I wonder, is there a particular message that you have for our listeners that they should take away today? The takeaway should be not that it's horrible to be bi, but that there's lots to be done on a social level to make being bi better. And ultimately, I love being bi. And most people, if you ask them about their bisexuality, if you ask them what their favorite thing is, they say, freedom. Like being bi is a beautiful thing. And I want people to also see these kinds of conversations as a celebration of this really prevalent sexuality. Julia, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Julia Shaw. You can find a link to her book, Bi, The Hidden Culture, History and Science of Bisexuality, on our podcast webpage, theguardian.com. 
Whilst you're there, you'll also find a link to some resources, including the BiPan Library, an independent archive of bi, pan and multisexual spectrum media. And if you want to listen to more on the topic, Julia has her own BBC podcast, Bad People, and we'll be doing some special episodes on bisexuality, by people, on that feed. So do keep an eye out for those. Now, I want to tell you about a virtual three-week Guardian Masterclass that's starting on Tuesday the 14th of June 2022 about understanding the climate crisis, something that we're increasingly talking about here on the podcast as well. In the Masterclass, you'll hear from journalists, activists and scientific experts, including Professor of Earth System Science Mark Maslin, Guardian reporter Damien Gale and Science Weekly regular and environment correspondent Fiona Harvey. Find out more and book your place online at theguardian.com forward slash climate dash masterclass. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley and Anan Jagatia. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku and the executive producer was Isabel Rugol. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.